0: The Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa online at let
1: or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey.
0: The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded.
1: I don't know about you, but when things are going very good and there are no major trials that I'm battling with, it's very easy to be spiritual. It's at those times that praising the Lord easily flows from my mouth. Very easy for me to say that. It's at those times when my patient seems ready to take on anything, even my son beating me up. It's at those times when I'm a little more pleasant to live with. My family can tell you that. My friends know I'm easier to get along with. I'm a little bit nicer to them. And in general, I'm just someone who can get along pretty much with everyone when things are going well. During that span of time, it seems to me that when things go well, It seems like everything is fresh. The birds, I can just hear them chirping, and they make beautiful music. In general, to me, life seems worth living when there are no severe trials or sufferings.
2: face trials, I think most of us, if we are honest, would say we don't react well. Uh, Greetings, and welcome to Verse by Verse with our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. When it comes to how we sometimes react during a trial, God knows that it's natural for us to act carnal, because we have that sin nature within us yet, And it's natural for us to react to situations as if we weren't even saved. And God knows our problems and what we battle with. So if you're going through a trial and you wonder how to act properly, or if God expects you to act properly, well, yes, He does. And God in His Word gives us some reasons for acting in a holy manner when we're going through a trial. Pastor Steve Kreloff is going to give us some very practical helps from 1 Peter for dealing with trials. So, let's get into today's lesson.
1: If you turn your Bibles to 1 Peter as we continue our study on this magnificent letter, all about really leaning on Jesus, isn't it? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 21, "...as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior." Because it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, But has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our Father, take the word now, minister to our hearts, change us, cause us to come into conformity to it. For We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. I don't know about you, but when things are going very good and there are no major trials that I'm battling with, it's very easy to be spiritual. It's at those times that praising the Lord easily flows from my mouth. Very easy for me to say that. It's at those times when my patience seems ready to take on anything, even my son beating me up. It's at those times when I'm a little more pleasant to live with. My family can tell you that. My friends know I'm easier to get along with. I'm a little bit nicer to them. And in general, I'm just someone who can get along pretty much with everyone when things are going well. During that span of time, it seems to me that when things go well, it seems like everything is fresh. The birds, I can just hear them chirping, and they make beautiful music. It seems that the flowers look magnificent. I don't notice them any other time, but the flowers seem to look magnificent. The sunrise and sunsets are breathtaking, and the air just smells very fresh, like after fresh rain. In general, to me, life seems worth living when there are no severe trials or sufferings. But when a trial hits me, and when suffering comes my way, it seems like all these things turn sour. You know what I mean. All I notice about the birds, quite frankly, is that their chirping wakes me up a little bit too early on my day off. And it seems like what I notice about them, instead of their beautiful music, is that my car seems to be the target range for all the birds in the neighborhood. That's what I think about the birds when a trial comes. The flowers don't look too great at that time. They just make me more aware that I sneeze a little bit more. From them. And the sun really just blinds me while I'm driving in my car. It seems I'm always going in the direction that the sun is either rising or setting, and I'm headed right for it. The air doesn't smell very fresh when the trials come. It always seems to me like I'm driving behind a Greyhound bus. And that's how trials seem to hit me. But nothing seems right when trials hit. When suffering comes, nothing seems to go right. And it isn't just with me, my perspective, that's distorted but my behavior becomes disgraceful many times. My attitudes, my actions, my thoughts, my responses. No longer do I, at that time, want to praise the Lord, whether it be in my heart or whether it be with my lips. I'm so impatient at that time, quite frankly, I don't have the patience to take out the seeds of a piece of watermelon that I'm eating. I'm crabby and cranky to my family, they'll tell you, aloof towards strangers and only tolerable towards friends. Suffering has a way of bringing out the worst in all of us. When things go well, we all seem to just flow with everything and everything is great. But when trials come, they put you to the test, don't they? You really see what you're made of then. And God knows that the last thing we want to think about when severe testing hits us is holy living, that type of living that's in obedience to the Word of God. That's the last thing that I really want to think of, though I think of that. It's the last thing I want to do in a natural fleshly response. Now, God knows that it's natural for us to act carnal because we have that sin within us. And it's natural for us to react to situations as if we weren't even saved. And God knows our problems, and God knows what we battle with. God knows the sufferings. But he hasn't left us without a solution. God has given us a solution to holy living in the midst of trials. If you're going through a severe test tonight, and you wonder how to act properly, or does God expect you to act properly? Yes, he does. And God, in his word, and in this passage, gives us Some reasons for acting in a holy manner when you're going through a trial. God knows these Christians were going through trials that you and I have never even thought about to the extent that they have experienced. But how do you behave godly when it seems like your whole world is caving in? That's really a question that we have to ask. We know from last week's study that it's necessary for every believer to go through trials. He will not enter into glory unless he first tastes a little bit of suffering here on earth. Jesus is our example as we studied last week, of verses 10 to 13. Jesus is our example. He went through it, the glory that would follow the sufferings of Christ. In this passage of Scripture, Peter is going to deal with holy living in the midst of suffering. Just what we said. How do you suffer and still have a radiant testimony so that you don't blow it, so that people say, if that's a Christian, I don't want to be a Christian. Anybody can say praise the Lord when things are going well. But what happens when they're not going so well? One Bible teacher defines spiritual maturity, and this is just what we went over with our staff and staff devotions this last Friday. He says, spiritual maturity is internalizing scriptural principles in order to respond to any given situation with Christ-like attitudes. How do you respond with Christ-like attitudes when everything seems to be going wrong? Everything. From the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep at night, the world seems to be against you. Everyone seems to be on the other side. In this passage, the Apostle Peter gives us four incentives for holy living. Number one, God is holy. Number two, God is our Father. Number three, God is our judge. And number four, God is our Redeemer. So let's get into the text. God is holy. That's the first reason we ought to live, the first incentive or motivation for a godly life. Verses 14 through 16. Look what he says in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed, to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. It's only proper that a child of God who's taken on the divine nature, the moment of salvation, he's taken on that nature, he act differently than he used to be. You shouldn't be the way you were. Paul says that when we're in Christ, all things are becoming new. You ought to be different. People have a distorted view of worldliness. Worldliness isn't what you do, it's your attitude. He says, we're now labeled children of obedience. That's what it originally is in the Greek. Not obedient children, though it's the same thing. We're children of obedience. Whereas before our conversion, what were we called? Children of disobedience. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And keep your place there at Ephesians chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 1. And you'll see it's a parallel passage, but it reverses what Peter is dealing with. Though the same truths are evident. Chapter 2, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Stay at chapter 2 of Ephesians and chapter 1 of Peter. Before, our lifestyle used to be totally disobedient, because we never had a divine nature, and we only had a sinful nature, and we were totally rebellious, totally disobedient, though maybe we were a little more sophisticated about it, but we were disobedient completely. Our entire lifestyle was one of going against God. Now we're told to be conformed to what we are now, not what we used to be, not our former lusts, which were ours in our ignorance. Maybe before we did these things ignorantly, but now we've got knowledge of the word of God. Now we're different. Now we have a divine nature. Kenneth Weiss says, the word fashion or conform in the Greek text refers to the act of assuming an outward appearance or expression which did not come from and is not representative of one's inmost and true nature. In other words, don't fake it. Be what you really are. And what you really are is a child of God, a child who's obedient, a child who's taken on the divine nature, and one who ought to act like he's different, not like everybody else. It's easy to fake it. You know that we live in a world that's artificial and plastic. As I was preparing for this message, I looked around my office to see all the fake things that are in my office, let me share with you what I found. I found artificial flowers, artificial wood. It's made of plastic and not wood. My shoes were artificial leather. And there was artificial glass, which was plastic covering some pictures I have in my office. Imitations, but not the real thing. They look like the real thing, but they weren't the real thing. And it's easy to carry this over into our spiritual lives. Now, I'm going to tell you a story That's a most interesting story, and I hope God will write it upon your hearts because it's funny, but it's a story that illustrates how we can fake it, how we can be torn up inside but put on that plastic front that says we're at peace when we aren't. And the whole point that I'm trying to make in illustrating this is that God says to be conformed to what you really are, one who has taken on the divine nature. The story involves some American soldiers during the Korean War. These soldiers rented a house, and they hired a local boy who would do their general housekeeping and their cooking and whatever else he needed to do. The rest I'll quote as I read it. This little Korean fellow they hired had an unbelievably positive attitude. He was always smiling, so they played one trick after another on him. They nailed his shoes to the floor. He'd get up in the morning, pull those nails out with pliers, and slip on the shoes and maintain an excellent spirit. They put grease on the stove handles, and he would wipe each one off, smiling and singing his way through the day. Sounds like what I experienced when I was a student at Moody. They balanced buckets of water over the door, and he'd get drenched. But he would dry off and never fuss time after time. Finally, the soldiers became so ashamed of themselves that they called him in. They called him in one day, and they said, We want you to know that we're... (laughs) This is really funny. We want you to know that we're never going to trick you again. Your attitude has been outstanding. He asked, you mean no more nail shoes to floor? No more, they said. No more sticky on stove knobs? No more. You mean no more water buckets on door? No more. Okay, then, no more spit in soup, he responded with a smile and a shrug. (laughs) If you were in the Korean War, you're wondering if you had a houseboy now who took care of you and why he smiled so much. But, you know, it's easy to fake it, just like that fellow. And, And more times than not, we're spitting in the soup. And we ought to be just admitting what we really are. And so God says, you have a divine nature. You live like that. Don't fake it. Don't spit in the soup and be torn up inside. Be what you really are, what God says you are. Don't fake it. Back to Ephesians chapter 2. You'll get over that one. You'll keep thinking about that tonight. You'll look at your soup twice when you drink it again. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Among them... We too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In other words, you used to have one nature, and you used to act this way, and that was it. You were like everybody else, but now don't be conformed to that, because now you've taken on something else. And Second Peter, if you want to turn over to Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, tells us this seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. You and I have taken on God's nature. We're different. You have everything you need. You are complete in Christ. We're to live like that. Verses 15 and 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be yourselves holy in all manner of behavior. Because it's written, you should be holy, for I am holy. It very simply means that God says, my standard is that you behave in a holy manner. Now we think How can I be holy? Only God is holy. That's exactly what God is saying. Since you've received my nature, you have the capacity to be holy. And in the midst of trials, you are responsible to obey God, no matter how rough it gets. That's what God's saying. You have everything you need, and there's no valid excuse for us to say, well, I'm going through some rough times now, so things are a little bit hard, and God knows I can behave a certain different way. There is no excuse. That becomes situation ethics. I can be holy, but not in this situation, because it's really rough here and God understands. You won't find that in the Word of God. God says, I have a standard. And if you violate that standard, you've sinned. God says, be holy because I'm holy. You know, our view of God really influences how we behave. That's why I believe so strongly in the sovereignty of God and the holiness of God. It's so easy to forget that in our day and age. There's a song that says, take time to be holy. The second stanza says this. Take time to be holy. The world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus, like him thou shalt be. Thy friends and thy conduct, his likeness shall see. Your perspective of God, getting to know him, what he's like, not just the things about God, but what God is like will determine how you behave. If you view God as someone who doesn't have a high standard of holiness, your whole lifestyle will be a low standard of holiness. It really is important that we have a view and a vision of God of what he's really like. Holy, holy, holy. God is holy. It'll change your behavior. But there's another incentive to our godly living. It isn't just God's holiness. Let me backtrack a moment. Some months ago, a new believer said to me, he said, now that I'm a Christian, why should I act any different? I don't know whether he was serious about not acting any different. I'd question his salvation if he was. But he said, all right, I'm going to go to heaven. I know that. Why be different? Well, if you've wondered that question, if you've wondered about that, this is the passage for you. Why be different? Because God is holy. And he says, you ought to be holy. If you're his child, you ought to be holy. But there's another incentive. God is our father. Verse 17. And if you address as father, let's stop there. When trials come, we've got to remind ourselves that God the Father is behind it ultimately. And we've got to realize that God is a father, a loving father, not a cosmic killjoy. Not someone who's out to mess up your life. But he's there in in his loving concern, allowing these trials and sometimes sending these trials directly because he wants to build into you obedience. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We looked at this passage last week. And I realized as I was studying it this week that it opened up a whole new dimension to me. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 because it's precious and pertinent to what we're dealing with. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes or focusing our attention on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. For you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now that's where we left off last week and we saw it's necessary. Jesus suffered. He's going to be exalted. We will suffer and our suffering, we will be exalted. But look at this. Verse 5, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. God is addressing it to you not as slaves, not as servants, but as sons. And here's what he has to say. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Many times our trials are disciplines. They're disciplinary action from God. Sometimes they're not, but sometimes they are. Nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you don't know what a trial is in the Christian life, if you've never been disciplined by God, God says you're illegitimate. You're not really mine, because with mine, I deal with them as children, as sons, because I'm perfecting their faith, I'm purifying them, I'm testing them. Verse 9, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. That's what we're talking about. Verse 11, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. But sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. In other words, God deals with us as a father deals with his children, and he disciplines us and sends us trials so that we might be trained to live properly. Do you see that? God disciplines us so that we might be encouraged to live a holy life. And so what is the incentive for living a godly life? That God is our father. And you see, when our father deals with us, there's nothing more And what a child wants to do than please his father. There's nothing greater for a child to do than to please his dad. But sometimes we can forget that God is our father. And we forget that he treats us as children. We just think that he treats us to get back at us. And it's likely that we can become bitter and resentful and disturbed by how God deals with us. And that's why God says don't despise his discipline. And God says that because it's so easy to grow bitter and despise what God is doing with you. But God says, listen, I'm training you to live a righteous and holy life. And it's necessary that you go through some tough times in order to become holy in your behavior. What's an incentive to be holy when you're going through trials and suffering to know that God is our father? He has every right to deal with us the way he would. You know that God has every right to deal with you as severely as he wants. Everything is of God's grace. You deserve nothing. I deserve nothing. God is our father, and we want to behave properly in order to please him. There's another incentive, as if this isn't enough. God is our judge. He goes on in verse 17, And if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. It's unhealthy to view God only as a loving father. Because sometimes we get this mushy sentimentality concerning God as if he's father time. And you do something and he just smacks your hand and says, well, you just go on. Everything's okay. The Bible says that not only is God a loving father, but he's a righteous judge. He's a righteous judge and he judges without any favor to any child of his because he's impartial. This word impartial in the Greek literally means he does not receive face. In other words, it means that God doesn't receive anyone's face. He's impartial. One commentary says this. Outward appearance and wealth, culture, social position, family, background, education, beauty, intellect, all the things that more or less sway the opinions of men do not count with God when it comes to appraising a person's character or his worthiness. So with what we've learned,
2: what is the incentive for living a godly life? God is our Father, and there's nothing greater for a child to do than to please their father. Thanks for listening to today's Verse by Verse program with our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff. In our next session, Pastor Steve will continue to teach us about a proper understanding of God and His fatherhood. All too often, we have a very twisted view of God, so I hope that you can join us next time for Verse by Verse. I would also like to mention that you are invited to join with the others at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you would like more information about the location of the church and times of their worship services, please go to lakesidechapel.com. That's lakesidechapel.com. We would also invite you to join us next time for Verse by Verse as we continue to explore 1 Peter.